Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what will be a really informative discussion on immersion pulmonary edema. Today, we're fortunate to have Dr. Falk and Wormshurst as our guests, and we'll be discussing Dr. Falk's article in CHEST entitled, The Incidence and Impact of Swimming-Induced Pulmonary Edema, SIPE, on Navy SEAL Candidates as well as the accompanying editorial by Dr. Wormshurst. So why don't we go ahead and introduce our guests, um, Dr. Falk? Yes, I am Dr. Charles Volk. I'm uh, one of the uh, faculty pulmonary critical care physicians over here at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. I'm uh, part of the U.S. Navy, uh, in which I am a uh, lieutenant commander. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. And our other guest, uh, Dr. Wormshurst. I'm Peter Wilmshurst. I'm a consultant cardiologist at the Royal Stoke University Hospital. I've been involved in research into immersion pulmonary edema for more than 40 years since I saw members of my own diving club develop pulmonary edema when scuba diving. And in March 1981, the British Heart Journal carried a report from my colleagues and I on a series of divers who had what we said was then a new syndrome of pulmonary edema when diving. In 1989, we published a larger series in The Lancet in which some of the individuals had pulmonary edema when surface swimming, and all of these individuals had exaggerated vasoconstrictor responses compared with unaffected people during during. Uh, physiological stimulation, and during an average of eight years follow-up, the majority of them became hypertensive. So, Peter, what is the exact definition of immersion pulmonary edema, and why is it so important to determine its incidence and impact? Well, I guess immersion pulmonary edema is pulmonary edema that occurs when you're immersed, and I guess that's simply the the definition, but it's important to know the incidence as it is of all diseases because it's important to know the incidence to determine um, the risks and look at the incidence in particular groups of people and in particular settings. Knowing which groups of people are affected helps us understand the pathophysiological mechanisms, gives enables us to give advice to groups of people and to plan research. So the fact that immersion pulmonary edema occurs more commonly in people with hypertension helps us understand the mechanisms, helps us advise hypertensives of the risks, and to think about prophylactic drugs. Another group in which the incidence is high is in women, but we have no idea why that is. So that's a an avenue for future research. The high incidence in particular events such as the Vanbro swimming race where about 
6.5% of the participants get immersion pulmonary edema enables the organizers to plan so that they can anticipate that they need up to 70 sets of CPAP for the people who would develop immersion pulmonary edema during the race. So it has a number of reasons why we need to know the incidence in particular groups and in particular settings. Yeah, that's pretty important. So Charles, with that background, maybe you could give us the motivation and rationale for your study and uh, maybe clarify for our audience what exactly is Hell Week? Sure, absolutely. So uh, the first uh, first thing that had happened here, the the reason that we uh, undertook this study uh, was that we actually had the uh, the medical staff over at uh, um, Naval Special Warfare, uh, which is in town here in San Diego. Uh, they came to one of my colleagues and had said, "Hey, we have this condition known as swimming induced pulmonary edema, also known as SIP, um, uh, that we see." all the time here during training, particularly during Hell Week. And it's been studied in the past uh, uh, with uh, some of my, some of my uh, previous colleagues, uh, specifically uh, Richard Mahon has done a number, uh, quite a bit of work in it. Uh, but, but they asked, well, we have a number, a, a significant percentage of our classes are dropping out because of, of pulmonary issues. And so when we dug a little bit further and said, well, well, how many? They said, well, honestly, we're not really sure. And how many of these are dropping out because of pneumonia or because of SIPE or because of something else? We weren't really sure. So uh, we were finding up to about 4 to 5% of the classes were being uh, rolled, that's what it's called. So just dropped from some training class and, and having to, to drop back to, uh, to a later one so they can sit and recover. But really the majority of those people don't make it through training, uh, and they wind up washing out for one reason or another. Um, uh, and so, uh, that was the reason they asked us to, okay, let's define what this problem is and figure out how often it's happening. So, uh, it, even before we started, we really had to go, okay, how are we going to define this? And then how are we going to uh, uh, to treat it and, and have a planned clinical pathway for everybody? And, uh, uh, you know, before we can study a problem, we have to define it. And that was our biggest issue. Uh, uh, and then the question of what exactly is Hell Week? Uh, well, it's, it's not pleasant, I can say that. So uh, starting on uh, on Sunday... Uh, it's this continuous training evolution in and out of the water. So uh, uh, the, uh, all these guys, for the most part, they're uh, almost entirely men, uh, are are uh, having to swim or tread water or lift heavy objects, running. They're, they're constantly doing something. And so uh, that starts on Sunday night and then continuously uh, uh, through that Sunday night, all throughout Monday, all throughout uh, uh, Monday nights. Uh, I mean, it's just basically uh, 36, 40 hours of, of straight work, no rest, no anything. Uh, and then they wind up uh, being able to rest for a short period of time, grab a little bit of food, and then they're just back to it. And so uh, all up until Friday morning, it's this continuous uh, exercise and exertion. They have to basically swim uh, all the way around uh, um, uh, an island area here in San Diego called Coronado, uh, and uh, they're, they're constantly wet, cold, and exhausted. 
And so uh, during this, uh, they get med checks every day, and people come in and they complain of shortness of breath, particularly when they're in kind of the, the cool, uh, the cold waters of the of the Pacific. It's usually, uh, um, well, in, in our study, uh, it was uh, about 58 degrees Fahrenheit through about 78 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, actually the, the warmest temperature uh, uh, that has ever been um, uh, been seen in the Pacific in San Diego since the uh, uh, since temperatures had uh, started to be sampled. I think in the early 20th century uh, um, it happened to be that year, but it's it's usually between about you know 58 and 78, and uh, uh, and so these are not warm tropical waters by any means. They're fairly cool to cold water here in the Pacific. So. Um, uh, so they would have to be working, 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 and uh, come in complaining of shortness of breath, being coughing up, uh, uh, you know, pink or uh, sputum, or even uh, or even frank hemoptysis. And uh, uh, so at that point, they would be worked up, and and plenty of them, as we as we'd shown, uh, wound up having sight. Well, that sounds pretty grueling, and uh, I guess fatigue would contribute a significant proportion to uh, that exertion. So in terms of study methods, uh, what were the main study methods? And then after that, what were your key findings? Sure. Uh, So the the way that we built our study was just a prospective uh, observational trial. So everything previously had been retrospective, and when we tried to go back and and uh, and dig into some of the data, it just didn't exist. the The medical record keeping was uh, acceptable, but uh, I've heard it uh, described by people there as tailgate medicine. of of uh, it, It's it's not the same thing as we as we do in the hospital. It's a, it's a very uh, very focused. Here's what we're going to do to uh, to get people okay, and then out the door. And uh, so it's lots of kind of chicken chicken scratch scribbles uh, uh, uploaded into the charts. Very difficult to follow. So basically, what we did is okay. Let's define exactly what type is um, which in and of itself is is a little bit of a, uh, at least was a challenge uh, when we first started this study here, and then uh, defined people into five categories. So uh, uh, do you have definite SIPE, probable SIPE, definite pneumonia, probable pneumonia, or was there an aspiration pneumonitis uh, 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 component to this as well? Um, uh, now, granted, Everybody here is is already of a highly accomplished swimmer, uh, and so the issues with aspiration really didn't wind up being much. We have a couple of cases of, of aspiration out of you know twenty one hundred people studied over the over the course of the fourteen months, um, and so a pretty low uh, low incidence of, of aspiration, uh, as would be expected with you know accomplished and, and skilled swimmers, you know, even. Uh, even exceedingly tired. So basically what we did is we uh, we worked out a way to uh, uh, have everything monitored on a specific form uh, uh, where it was just anybody who's coming in with a respiratory complaint, fill out this respiratory complaint form. Uh, so then uh, we could go back, uh, myself and then one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Dr. Michael Tripp, um, uh, sat down 
afterwards and kind of were able to look through all the chest x-rays that were done, uh, the EKGs, and then the uh, the medical record of everybody after, you know, a few weeks and saw, is this the presentation of Cyper? Is this the presentation of pneumonia or aspiration or was it something else? Plenty of people had just sinusitis issues and, and other things that weren't actually actually lung disease. Uh, so uh, at that point then, uh, uh, we were just able to look through all of this data and then uh, be able to uh, uh, report it out um, uh, in, uh, um, uh, in a defined manner. Uh, so then the follow-up to that, what were the key findings? So the big things that we, that we saw was that uh, um, out of the uh, 2,117 candidates that uh, that came through, uh, we had 106 cases of definite and probable SIPE. Uh, so that put us at uh, exactly uh, 5% of the uh, of the candidates who came through uh, uh, wound up having being diagnosed with SIPE. Um, they primarily occurred uh, during Hell Week, and occasionally outside of that, there's a two-mile um, uh, open ocean swim uh, in which uh, we would see a fair number of cases as well. And occasionally, while well, they were just out in the water doing other training outside of Hell Week, because even outside of the, the Hell Week period, it's still not uh, not easy training. You know, uh, uh, typical things are a a uh, um, uh, I think it's a 15-meter uh, pool. It's like, okay, go dive down to the bottom of the pool. Uh, you know, breath holding. You have to uh, undo it or you know, tie a knot and undo a knot. And and uh, in the middle of that, we're trying. Uh, they're trying to push you. You know, um, mess with you. And it, and if you uh, if you fail that once, okay, go try it again. And and uh, if that's failed, okay, you're out of the program. It's it's extremely grueling training. Uh, so. Um, uh, so again, going back to, to uh, our findings, about five percent of the people had uh, a definite probable SIP. Uh, uh, slightly over two percent had definite probable pneumonia, and then uh, two cases of uh, seawater aspiration. The other notable things that we had found in the study uh, were that uh, um, uh, originally the uh, the cadre there who was working with the cases saw that uh, uh, these taller, thinner uh, candidates seemed to get sipe a lot more often, and uh, we were able to go back to the to just the anthropometric measurements and saw that there was no statistical difference between the height and weight of those who did or did not uh, um, have sipe. Um, uh, and then. Uh, uh, our chest X-ray findings actually found that a little over half half of the people had kind of a classic interstitial pulmonary edema picture, but a number of the people also had what really looked like a low bar pneumonia, a, a low bar consolidation, sometimes even multi low bar consolidation pattern. Uh, but that cleared up within 24, 48 hours, um, and no fever, no other, uh, no other signs of infectious pneumonia, and so we had ascribed all of those to SIPE as well. Um, uh, and uh, uh, then, uh, along with that, we had looked at EKGs, uh, both taken uh, from the initial screening, and then done well. People were acutely symptomatic and, and found no no real significant difference between the two of them. Um, and then also notable for water temperatures, we certainly did see more cases uh, um, uh, when it was colder, uh, but it wound up being statistically 
statistically difficult to tease out because the colder the water is, the less the trainers actually put them in the water. Uh, and so it kind of uh, wound up being, being a wash um, uh, as far as what exactly was the exposure period. We just weren't able to really define that, un- unfortunately. So, Peter, I want to pull you into this conversation. So when you found uh, or read the paper and saw the key findings, how did you interpret them? Well, for me, there were a number of key findings. Firstly, I was um, impressed, I suppose that's the right word, that in fact 5% of, in this prospective observational study, 5% of these fit young men undergoing uh, rigorous training uh, and assessment to be U.S. Navy SEALs got immersion pulmonary edema. So it sort of emphasizes the point that, in fact, you can make anyone or probably make anyone go into pulmonary edema if the challenge is enough. So if you put, you know, vasoconstrict them enough, fluid overload them enough, make it difficult for them to breathe enough, then anyone will go into pulmonary edema. The other thing that, um, another point was that 10 of these individuals got recurrent episodes of immersion pulmonary edema. And that confirms the findings of other groups, a number of other groups, that some individuals are at increased risk of getting immersion pulmonary edema if you, even if you can't find an obvious reason why they should be at increased risk. Also, um, the pulmonary edema was predominantly anterior and right-sided, or in many cases it was right-sided, but it was predominantly anterior. And again, that confirms the findings of others that uh, immersion pulmonary edema is often anterior um, rather than, as we'd normally expect, posterior. You often listen at the back of the chest and listen for crackles at the back of the chest. But if you've got immersion pulmonary edema or you suspect it, you have to listen at the front of the chest because, of course, the dependent part of the lung in swimmers is the front when they're swimming prone. And, of course, some U.S. Navy SEALs swim on their side, so it may be unilateral. Um, Another finding that was of interest to me is that there were not ECG changes seen, or EKG changes, you would say, I suppose, seen in these these people with immersion pulmonary edema, swimming-induced pulmonary edema, which contrasts with what is found commonly in people who are middle-aged and elderly who get this. They often get transient electrocardiographic changes and transient regional wall motion abnormalities on echocardiogram, which um, doesn't seem to be the case in fit young people. And that happens. that's the case even if there's no coronary disease. So middle-aged and elderly people who get immersion pulmonary edema often get repolarization changes on their electrocardiogram and um, wall motion abnormalities transiently, even though there is no coronary artery disease. So these are some differences in in what we find in uh, young fit people who get immersion pulmonary edema. And of course, that's, I should say, is described not in such a large series, but is described by the uh, Israeli Defense Force, the French military, of all described um, cohorts of people who get immersion pulmonary edema when they're 
18 or 19. So it's um, so young people who get it are different from older people who get it in some ways. Thank you, Peter. And so, Charles, what's your response to Peter's comments, and what do you think the implications of your findings are, especially since we're coming into the uh, summer months here in the Northern Hemisphere? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I, I was surprised that uh, the EKGs really didn't show anything uh, or anything really notable, just young athletes' hearts. Um, uh, so sometimes we had early repolarization, things that would be expected. And so uh, we had hypothesized that it, it could be that if we were able to get an EKG right as they were pulled out of the water, um, uh, maybe we would have found something there. So it's probably about 30 to 45 minutes by the point in which you know they're they're taken out of the water, out of the out of the pool, wherever it is that they are having their. Uh, um, uh, their uh, um, respiratory failure, put on oxygen, warmed up, and then brought to the brought to the clinic where they're you know they get vitals, everything else. So by the time that it had happened, uh, the, the EKG was actually obtained. It you know, might be an hour after they're they're pulled out of the water. Uh, and so I, I wonder if young, healthy people uh, certainly do have some transient. Uh, probably left-sided heart failure could be some right-sided heart failure as well. Um, that we're just not catching with an EKG. And so I've got some further studies uh, kind of planned uh, planned to, to dig into that uh, a little bit more here. I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question? Um, what do you think the implications are for uh, us approaching uh, the, this, um, the summer period in the Northern Hemisphere? And, and maybe you could comment in reference to the fact that the, the Navy SEALs are, uh, as you said, fatigued. They're not sleeping as much. And then what influence would um, preconditioning have had? Like, are these conditioned swimmers, were they training for like a month or so beforehand? Um, or had, were they just they started the program without any training? Oh, no. So, so everyone here trains extensively i mean this is uh this is a long process that's uh, a year year and a half of of uh, aggressive training and and everyone Every one of these uh, of these men who show up to the program is uh, a skilled trained athlete now they uh, I don't know how much they had been swimming uh, aggressively beforehand, but it's a it's a run up period uh, even while they're there of several weeks of, of training and uh, and work even before they get to Hell Week, and so they're they're not coming in cold uh, by any means. There's uh, um, there's a significant training period beforehand. Now, what does this mean as we come up to the uh, the summer months? Actually, we expect less sipe uh, in the in the summer months here, just because the water water gets warmer. Um, and there tends to be uh, uh, less in our in our summer months. We certainly see a, a drop off uh, of uh, of the number of cases that are seen. But then, as they as it gets warmer, sometimes uh, certain classes they have them go more in the water. You know, uh, for instance. Uh, uh, in uh, in 2018, uh, in August, when it was fairly warm water here, we had about 72 to 75 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Um, we had a whole slew of cases one day because they they really pushed them hard in the um, in this two mile open water swim, and so we certainly saw more cases. Um, so. As uh, uh, as the summer months come here, it's it's more because uh, COVID is starting to wane and and more people are getting vaccinated, as uh, uh, we're able to push a little bit harder with uh, with the training. 
COVID's really thrown a uh, thrown a big wrench into our study here, seeing as how we are trying to observe a specific uh, respiratory failure condition, and we have this whole global pandemic that also causes respiratory failure, uh, which has uh, made it more difficult to study, I'll say. Peter, what's your comments um, to uh, Charles's uh, response, and what key limitations did you identify in interpreting the study? Well, I, the key limitations that I thought were there were that um, I would have been happy if there had been a control group of U.S. Navy SEAL candidates who didn't have any problems, so they were compared with those who had immersion pulmonary edema, not rather than just using uh, a pneumonia group. That would be interesting. Um, the, I'd also have liked to see measurements of blood pressures of those affected at baseline, that is, before they actually started the, the course or the assessment period, So, and compare their blood pressures with the blood pressures of... Um, people who didn't get immersion pulmonary edema, and also the blood pressures when they presented with immersion pulmonary edema. There's a lot of, or there's some evidence that suggests that these people do get pathological increases in blood pressure, which causes uh, extra load on the left ventricle. And in fact, I've seen in uh, British uh, Special Forces who've had this. I've done some work on them, and they, the ones who get this, often get very high hypertensive responses when they exercise more than you'd expect. So they're, they're getting very hypertensive on exercise, even out of the water. So it would be nice to see some measurements of blood pressure because I think that may be one of the key things. Those are pretty useful limitations. Uh, Charles, what are the limitations that you identify? Uh, sure. Uh, totally agree with the, with the blood pressure issue. Uh, as it turned out, uh, we, we had them uh, check blood pressure uh, when they got to the clinic, uh, and then you know, we did wind up looking back at uh, at least a, a number of the people as to, well, what were their, uh, what were their initial blood pressures? Honestly, there wasn't much difference, and, but it wound up being kind of statistically messy, and so we wound up not, uh, not presenting it in the study, but we didn't find Find any any major signals from uh, from a blood pressure issue. Now, some of that may be that uh, um, you know these these measurements are taken uh, at least a period of time after they're warmed up, put on oxygen, finally brought to the uh, brought to the clinic for evaluation. And so we had uh, we had thought, all right, well maybe. Uh, maybe it was by the time that they had presented, the, the blood pressure had already improved. Uh, ultimately, it didn't wind up being uh, really, really scientifically riveting reading uh, from uh, uh, the data we were able to obtain. And so that's part of our part of our follow-up studies is to try and uh, try and get a lot more uh, earlier measurements and uh, and compare those. And uh, certainly, uh, the limitation of a control uh, control group. Uh, was a uh, was a constant thorn in our side for uh, um, uh, for this study. Uh, one of the issues in getting this uh, uh, approved to 
uh, at all was that uh, we wouldn't go looking for things that may be potentially disqualifying. Uh, uh, that was that was a big issue in getting consent for um, for evaluation of people who didn't have a medical need to be evaluated. Is that well? What if you find something that we need to follow up on? And it, it wound up being uh, um, uh, difficult from a um, from a military duty status. Uh, um, uh, side, and so uh, we kind of had to, to work within our, our confines of, of what the military would would allow us to do. Um, so our, our, our big limitation, uh, as well as, as I had alluded to previously, is that there is a period of time between when this is happening and when they are being fully evaluated in the medical clinic, which usually isn't too long, but, uh, um, but all the medics who are, who are there at the scene, um, uh, while they're warming people up, giving them oxygen, doing all of this work, that data is very difficult to obtain because they're generally kind of uh, uh, writing it on a little uh, card, or if they're uh, if it's all really being documented at all, it's kind of uh, it's like studying things uh, way out in the field for for uh, um, paramedic EMS response. Is that the the documentation is spotty, and so if you're trying to study that, it's uh, there become lots of holes in uh, um, uh, in those data measurements, and so we're we're working on uh, uh, trying to capture some more of that data. Yeah, I think you've described some of the challenges of conducting these studies. Um, Peter, I want to turn to you. So with these limitations notwithstanding and the findings that we have, what would you say are the implications of the study, and how does it um, advance our understanding of immersion pulmonary edema? Well, it, it, the main thing is that it, it tells us that immersion pulmonary edema is very common, and I think the way it may help our understanding in the future is that, in fact, you've got a group of people where you can predict in advance that there is a high likelihood of some of them getting immersion pulmonary edema. So you can design studies around that because it seems that in U.S. Navy SEAL training and assessment, one in 20 is going to get immersion pulmonary edema. So if I could predict, you know, with diseases that, you know, a man in the street or, you know, a group of men that tomorrow one of these 20 is going to get a myocardial infarction. I could do all sorts of things in advance. You've got a group of people that you can study and you can predict that out of every 20, on average, one of them is going to get immersion pulmonary edema. So you can look in advance at why, you know, what's different about those who actually turn out to have immersion pulmonary edema the following week. So I think that's the the great potential of this. And uh, Charles, um, maybe you could uh, conclude the podcast for us with uh, summarizing what you think the implications are, um, uh, given the fact that I think uh, 1 in 20 is quite a substantial number. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, when we when we look at an at an incoming class who's uh, is going to be going through, we we can absolutely say now that you know about one in twenty is going to present with this. And so, uh, uh, you know, when we when we look at somebody who has uh, shortness of breath is uh, 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 for whatever reason, we can go. All right, there's a pretty high likelihood that this is sight. And so, uh, this is kind of a, a a baseline study. It, it 
more is helpful for for saying, okay, the the whole tall and thin uh, uh, candidates uh, being at more risk. We can say it doesn't uh, doesn't appear to be so. Uh, doesn't look like EKG is really helpful here. So we need to look at other things. Bedside ultrasound. Is there any any blood or sputum studies that could be done? Um, uh, we also have a uh, have a trial of a uh, non-invasive uh, gas exchange. Um, uh, uh, measurement device from Medipines that we're that we're working with right now. Uh, it, it's more informative for our future studies uh, to to say, all right, here's our baseline. We know five percent uh, um, on the whole winds up getting SIPE, and so uh, um, we can uh, look at our future studies in that light, uh, saying, here's how often it happens. So what can we do to, to move that needle? Because ultimately what the, uh, what the Navy command wants us to do is to say, how do we make training safer, um, uh, for everybody going through? And is there uh, a possible way to predict who is going to get this? And, uh, and if so, is there a way to prevent it? And so those are all the, all the things that we're working on right now. Yeah, I think that's very important, making sure that uh, this training is safe. Um, Peter, are there any uh, concluding comments that you have uh, for the podcast? No, I think I think that's covered it, really. I think it's, you know, very interesting. Uh, and, uh, and it does lead open ways to advance the study in the future. Great. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having both of you on the podcast. Um, a very big thank you to Drs. Volk and Wormshouse for a stimulating conversation. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a Chess Podcast.